This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. I'm Ellen Lee Beter. Today on the show, what influences attachment parents when deciding whether or not to vaccinate? Is it the GP, other parents, the Australian Vaccination Skeptics Network? We'll find out a little later on. But first on the program... And they then proceeded to tell me that when my baby did arrive, that there was no saving her, that... Um, she could pass away in my arms or I could leave her in her cot and let her pass away in her cot. For new parents, often the biggest decision to make is whether to paint your child's room a gender-neutral colour or go with blue or pink. Choosing whether your baby dies in your arms or in their cot is something that only happens in a nightmare. Unfortunately for parents of babies born extremely prematurely, this is but one of the difficult questions that must be decided in a turbulent time. You know, it's so it's so hard for someone to tell you that, you know, you've carried this baby for five months and you've felt little niggles and you've felt her starting to kick, you know, and you've, you've seen, you know, your ultrasound images of her moving around and... It's it, it's a really hard thing to to take in um, because a it's not fair and b you've 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 already got this bond with this person who's growing inside of you. This is Melissa. Finding out she was pregnant was a surprise for her and her partner. She'd had a few miscarriages and was trying to lose weight. Only those last few kilos wouldn't shift. My partner and I have been together for 11 years and we uh, had quite a few miscarriages over um, the time that we've been together. And I, we weren't trying. <laughs> um, I was, you know, trying to lose weight because I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, so that can interfere with your fertility. And I was losing weight and I was trying to lose the last five kilos of my 15 kilo goal. And I found it really hard. Um, you know, it wasn't coming off and I didn't know why and, you know, uh, I went to the shops one day to buy a piece of meat and found myself gagging in the, in the meat aisle. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and um, took a pregnancy test and it was positive and, yeah, we were just really shocked. <laughs> Melissa had a normal pregnancy. Her 20-week scan was very positive. At 22 weeks, Melissa was involved in a near miss and her otherwise normal pregnancy took a turn for the worse. I was going to a meeting with my coordinator for work and we had a near car accident um, and I had to slam my brakes on going from 70 kilometres 
an hour um, because five or six cars in front of me had slammed their brakes on. And um, the impact from that, um, I later on found out, is what um, brought on my on my early onset labour. Nobody was harmed in the almost accident, and Melissa thought nothing of it. A few days later, she noticed she was bleeding heavily and took herself to hospital. It was Monday, and she was 22 weeks and six days pregnant. They pretty much put the speculum in and said, OK, and pulled it out, and then began to tell me not to worry, but this, but you know, I'm three to four centimetres dilated. The baby's head is facing down. She's got lots of hair. The amniotic sac is bulging out of my cervix. And I was pretty much going to have the baby that day. When it comes to extremely premature babies, an extra day in the womb can make all the difference. An extra week, even more so. The longer the baby spends in its mother's womb, the more likely it is to survive, as you would expect. Melissa's hospital said they weren't equipped to deliver a baby at 22 weeks and six days gestation. As it currently stands, there are no standard Australian guidelines on when to save an extremely premature baby. Hi, my name is Dr Neera Bhatia. I'm from the School of Law at Deakin University in Melbourne. As Dr Bhatia explains... When a hospital resuscitates an extreme prem is up to them and the experience of the doctor treating. The current clinical guidelines that we have in Australia vary from hospital to hospital and they are essentially dependent on the doctor that is treating at the time. There has been some discussion um, in New South Wales by a consensus of doctors where they have spoken about um, a suggested time frame where comfort care should be given and they've discussed 23 weeks and six days but across Australia we don't have any uniform guidelines as such. Um, They vary as I said from hospital to hospital and decisions are essentially made on a case-by-case basis. Ruby held on for one more day bringing her gestation to 23 weeks. It was now Tuesday. Um, So we pleaded (laughs) as you do when you're desperate um, and you have no other choice and and you know life taken over and and things go out of your control you plead uh, you beg and you plead and it wasn't until the next day where because um, I had to stay at my local hospital overnight um, and it wasn't until the next day that I got up to go to the toilet and sneezed and contractions began. Melissa's local hospital called another hospital more equipped to deal with a now 23-weeker. She was there within half an hour and given drugs to stop her labour progressing. That really helped um, and gave her a few more extra days in me. (laughs) (laughs) The next evening, she was in labour again. It was Wednesday and Ruby was 23 weeks and one day. So it wasn't until the Wednesday night that I I started to go into labour again, but The nursing staff at this hospital didn't think that I was in labour and thought it was Braxton Hicks. And is that Ruby I can hear in the background? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) She's looking at me like, why aren't you talking to me? (laughs) 
If you haven't already noticed her gurgling away during this story, you can rest easy because we do have a happy ending. On the Thursday, Ruby was born. She was 23 weeks and 2 days, or to use the microperm lingo, 23 and 2. A normal pregnancy lasts 37 to 42 weeks. Ruby spent the next four months in hospital and left the day after what would have been her due date. She is a little miracle. (laughs) (laughs) It's a story that doesn't always have a happy ending, especially for a 23-weeker. Ruby was given a 5% chance of survival once she was in the real world, and that was if she survived labour. If she did survive, she was also likely to have a disability. More than half of babies born at 23 weeks will have a disability. They, you know, told us what the risks were for the birth, for me, for the baby, you know, for her life later on, risks of health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, they told us that there was a high chance that she would have cerebral palsy or brain bleeds learning difficulties, um, lung issues, hearing and eye issues. They were um, quite high on the list. And this is where saving extremely premature babies gets a bit hairy. With the possibility of a life in pain being so high, should these tiny infants be saved? Who should be the one to make the decision? This whole area is a huge minefield. Dr Janet Green is a senior researcher in the Faculty of Health at UTS. She has recently released a paper looking at how nurses perceive the quality of life of these extremely premature babies. Quality of life is um, it's a very subjective term and what might be quality to one person may not necessarily be quality to another. And what you'll find is that most quality of life determinations are often made by people who are not living that life. So what? how do we define quality? Is it somebody who is, has um, the use of their brain? Is it somebody who is mobile? In my research, for example, the nurses talked about the quality of life of the parents being just as important as the quality of life for the surviving baby. In Dr Green's research, quality of life was more than just the quality of life for the child, but the family too. Nurses also spoke about the differences between a physical and cognitive disability. They felt that a cognitive disability was worse than a physical disability because people, and and they gave lots of examples, so people with a physical disability are still able to do things, they may need some help um, and that kind of thing, but they felt that um, the brain was of particular significance and that when it was damaged, um, there was likely to be a worse outcome. The real issue is doctors don't know the true extent of the disability for several years. All you can do is guess. Most of the major disabilities will have arrived before one year of age. But you're absolutely right. The, the uncertainty is um, what gets to certainly gets to a lot of the nurses. I think that the best available evidence is used and given to the parents and they, they make the decision about what they think is in the best interest of their child. In Melissa's experience, she says that the medical staff had numerous conversations with her about whether and when to continue or withdraw treatment for Ruby. They did tell us of everything bad that could happen and and we did 
talk about her quality of life and what our limits were. You know, we we um, we made plans. We, you know, we every day we re- we um, we've revisited those plans until she was born on the quality of life for her and for myself as well. Um, I'm glad that it didn't come to that. Melissa says even if Ruby was going to have a disability, she wouldn't have withdrawn treatment. I know myself that even if they had turned around to me and said that, okay, your baby is going to have cerebral palsy, I don't think that I would have been able to, say, cease treatment. I don't know. How do you do that? As we mentioned earlier, there are no national guidelines helping doctors to decide whether to continue or withdraw treatment of extreme PREMS. Dr Green explains that there are some things that are considered, but it is very much on a case-by-case basis. There are things that are taken into account, for example, um, birth weight, gestation, what the... um, so the you know the the health of the mother because all of those things actually impact on the outcome they look at they scan the brain to see if there's any damage they look at lung damage the the problem with babies of extreme prematurity is that they're born at a time when their organs are all present but they um, need a lot more maturation and it's during that time that the very technology designed to save them can damage so a clinical guideline is not terribly helpful when you are dealing with somebody's much wanted baby, but it should be every every baby, every circumstance should be taken on an individual basis rather than blanket rules about babies, extremely premature babies in general. But what happens when a parent thinks treatment should continue and a doctor doesn't? How about the other way around, when a parent doesn't want to continue treating the baby? This is where the courts step in, as Dr Bhatia explains. Talk about Australian courts. They, they seek a lot of guidance from the UK judgments, but the courts will consider the medical prognosis and they'll look at the medical opinion. And the courts will essentially uh, determine under their parens patriae jurisdiction as being the parent of the nation what is ultimately in the best interests of that particular infant. And the central questions that the courts will consider Um, are are things such as what's the quality of life going to be for that extremely premature infant? What quality of life will he or she have? Um, Would further treatment be futile for that particular infant? What would be the burdens of treatment or what would the benefits of treatment be? In addition to pushing for a national framework on how to treat extreme PREMS, Dr Bhatia thinks we should be having a conversation about whether we should be resuscitating at all in some cases. The fact that we have an ageing population and we have finite, limited public resources and where we do have an extremely premature infant that, that we push for treatment, aggressive treatment to be given to that child and this child survives with extremely debilitating disabilities, it's the parents that then have to take that child home and care for that child. And it's also the long-term effect that that will have on on the parents and other siblings and the wider family, as well as society and community in terms of raising that child and and really caring for that child. And they're questions that we really need to to be asking. They're, They're uncomfortable questions but I think they're definitely questions that we need to start asking. 
It's definitely a, a very interesting concept because I'm sure a lot of parents who have children with disabilities, they say it's actually quite a rewarding experience to have a child with a disability. Oh, absolutely. And, and I do not take that away from anybody. I think that um, disability in no way is something that is, is a bad thing or that a thing that should be shunned. Um, I, I do, however, think that in uh, an ageing population, we do need to consider um, the resources in giving that child, be it a disabled child, a life that where they are given the utmost care and the utmost um, services and the best services that they should, should be given and provided with. And I, I question whether we can do that. As for Ruby, Melissa realises how lucky she is for her to survive. They watched many extreme prems die, including a little boy who died after 11 days. He was the same age as Ruby. But for now, Ruby is at home, still on a feeding and oxygen tube, but she's getting stronger every day. She's working on coming off the oxygen. We're up to three to four hours off a day. Um, so it's just, it's just a process and it's just a matter of time, but... We're hoping that she's just going to be a normal, happy, healthy child. And if you would like to hear Melissa's full story, as well as a discussion of Dr Green's full research paper, you can head to our website at 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. Coming up next, the marketing strategies of the pro and anti-vaccination camps. Which one is more likely to get attachment parents over the line? You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, you're listening to Think Health. Ellen Lee Beater with you. Now, for the majority of Australians, vaccinations are a no-brainer. But for a small percentage of the population, there are still questions to be answered about the benefits and risks of getting a jab. At the beginning of this year, the No Jab, No Pay legislation came into force, preventing parents from collecting a range of government benefits if their child isn't fully vaccinated. But is this scheme really going to catch all those who don't vaccinate? John Wardle is from the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. He's been looking at the reasons why people do and don't vaccinate. He's recently completed a pilot study looking at attachment parents in particular. Vaccination rates are some of the highest in the world in Australia. There are pockets where they do fall below what we do need for herd immunity, so the northern rivers, northern beaches, uh, eastern Sydney can be a bit problematic. Uh, But by and large, the vaccination rates are pretty high um, and the problems that we have in Australia certainly aren't the same level as we see in North America or France or some of the other countries. You've recently undertaken an exploratory pilot study looking at why attachment parents in particular have debates as to whether to vaccinate or, or not to vaccinate. Why did you choose attachment, the attachment parenting style in particular? Basically, it was a convenient sample to actually... Uh, to actually use to explore this issue because we know that attachment parents do have a debate on vaccination, whether they should, whether they shouldn't. They have variable views. Uh, probably about half do, probably about half don't. Uh, you know, compared to the general population where you've got 
95% of people doing it and 5% perhaps questioning it. Uh, it's much easier to find an equal number of pro and anti people in that attachment community. Taking a step back, yep. what, how, did you, how did you define attachment parenting? Uh, well, attachment parents are a self-identified group, so they're a pretty close-knit community. Uh, there's a lot of interaction uh, via social media um, and physical presence too. So if you go to a place like the Northern Beaches, there are usually weekend meetups. Uh, this is a, a theory of parenting that's based largely on a, on, on a, on a book by Dr. Sears, uh, an American physician who uh, advocated, uh, I guess, a natural approach to parenting, co-sleeping, uh, you know, physical touch, uh, uh, sort of, you know, the parent always being present around the children, uh, a number of these other factors. So you you weren't interested in whether parents did or didn't vaccinate. You were more focused on what influenced them and who influenced them to make that decision. So so what and who was influencing their decisions? Well, I, I think the the key thing that we actually found out was that health practitioners play a very, very small role. So it's like your GP. So GPs were not involved at all. Um, in the discussion, uh, and if they were involved, they were generally seen as a uh, not not particularly helpful. Uh, you know, we we had a parent who was very very pro vaccination now, uh, who had been anti vaccination historically, and she actually relayed that you know she thought that if she hadn't spoken to a GP about vaccination, she actually would have been pro vaccination far quicker <laughs> um, than she, than she'd actually. Uh, been so sometimes the approach to communication can actually tell people um, can influence the way that people actually make their decisions so not being able to have a conversation with a with a healthcare provider so a lot of the parents relayed trying to raise the discussion with the healthcare provider and being shut off and so that forced them to find information elsewhere but ultimately this was something that um you know the attachment parenting group by default I guess is a is a group that sort of comes about from people questioning conventional approaches to to anything so when they make any decision around their child they don't necessarily just go the conventional route Uh, they might end up at the conventional route but they don't choose it as their default they do tend to research whatever they do so you know self-study was probably the biggest factor and what about these fence sitters who have information from both sides what made them choose one side or the other well, this was something that was really interesting because it was really the the way that the benefits of one side over the other were communicated. And what we found were the anti-vaccination groups tended to emotionally connect a lot better with parents than the public health groups did. Uh, so public health, the messages on vaccination tend to focus more on facts. Um, they tended to be very cautious about relaying any risks. And there are risks to vaccination. They're very, very small when you look at the benefits, but there are some risks. But the fact that these risks weren't communicated and then the parents would find them even in government material, um, you know, these small risks of redness or, um, you know, those sorts of things, uh, you know, made them question what their what their doctors were saying. and Or weren't saying. Or weren't saying. Um, and just even the ability to have a conversation. So when they'd go to New South Wales Health or they'd go to their nurse or their, their, their uh, doctor, the conversation would be shut down because the, the doctor was convinced that there was nothing to discuss about vaccination because the case was so clear-cut. Whereas when they went to an anti-vaccination group, it was more of a, yes, we understand that your children is very <laughs> you know, important, that you have concerns, these are understandable concerns. So that's sort of a... Basically, if you look at it from a marketing and advertising perspective, everything that marketers and advertisers tell companies to do, the anti-vaccination groups were doing, and everything they tell companies not to do, the public health groups were doing. So... Just to quote you off air, you said parents don't think in facts. No, parents don't think in facts. So when, when, when you have a child, everything, uh, even, even small risks become blown up disproportionately because they're your child and you don't want to put them through any harm. And if you look at some of Julie Lee's work, for example, this 
failure, I guess, to even discuss the small risk in vaccination. And a lot of, you know, uh, there is a reason for that. A lot of people are concerned that if they relay risk, that these risks will be thrown dispo- uh, <laughs> blown up disproportionately. But what what other work in Australia has actually shown is that uh, not disclosing these risks can actually make parents even angrier once they find out about these risks, even if they're the tiniest things like, you know, redness or irritability that can happen after um, you know, temperatures that can happen after a child, but most of these things are resolved very, very quickly. There's a, um, you know, there's there's a very, very small chance that pretty significant damage can be done uh, with vaccination. But ultimately, you know, you choose one risk over the other, and not giving them a vaccination puts them at a greater risk of <laughs> much more dangerous um, events in the first place. But it was that communication of how these things are put forward to parents that that was a very very clear difference between groups and actually did influence decision making from one group over the other and even um little things so we you know we tend to think of the anti-vaccination community as unscientific one of the things that i thought was really interesting was the information that they were provided by these groups was referenced whether it was referenced correctly or cited correctly is one thing but it looked like it was a real research document the stuff they were given by new south wales health or their their general physicians so you know it's either the the this more uh information sheet that comes in the vaccination packet that's actually written by the drug company or it's a pamphlet from new south wales health that just talks about benefits but doesn't actually have a reference list down the bottom so you know these sorts of things come into play, which, you know, we don't tend to think of the anti-vaccination group as more scientific, but it certainly looks more scientific to a parent that perhaps doesn't know science as much as a scientist does. The no jab, no pay rules did come into effect mm-hmm. on January 1 this year. From your research, did any of the parents discuss whether this would be an incentive to get the vaccinations? No, not at all. It was, um, uh, you know, th- these people aren't making the decision financially. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, I guess, concerned that they would have to try and find the money somehow. Um, the reality is, too, a lot of people that don't vaccinate in Australia are wealthier than perhaps, um, particularly in the attachment parent- parenting group, than the average population, so they can probably afford, <laughs> you know, to pay those extra costs. But, you know, there were also things that were brought up, like informal daycare, which actually turned out to be even cheaper than the no jab, no pay subsidy. You know, an unemployed mother sort of, you know, agreeing to look after everyone else has unvaccinated kids for 50 bucks a day or something like that. So, you know, the solutions had already been found to these things. So there, there was certainly no, you know, people were upset and they were disappointed that this had been done, but, but it certainly hadn't wavered their decision in any way. What do you think governments can do to encourage the anti-vaxxers to mm. vaccinate? That very, very small yeah, well, well, I think one thing we need to do is really have a look at the reality of the situation. And the even with this anti-vaccination community in Australia, the vaccination rates are quite high. And I do tend to think that we perhaps think of the anti-vaccination group as being more significant than it, than it perhaps is. Um, what we found is that there were a lot of people that don't vaccinate that actually don't even like talking to the anti-vaccination groups because they think of them as too crazy and too, <laughs> too emotive. So... Um, you know, so even the people that weren't vaccinating, the anti-vaccination groups weren't always, you know, influential in their decision making either. So, um, you know, and for another another proportion of the group, wasn't access the main issue? So access is a big issue, um, and we found this with uh, this actually came from our work at Medicare Local, which is a different project. But the you know some of the areas of lowest vaccination are areas where you've got high casualisation of the workforce, high incidence of single parent uh, families, low incidence of motor vehicle ownership low socioeconomic status and in these groups it's you know the the biggest issue isn't so much the you know the the attitudes to vaccination it's actually getting the time to vaccinate children so if you are a single mother 
Uh, you are working a casual shift. You have a appointment with your with your doctor. You've probably got a bulk billing appointment, which is hard to get, and you have to do these weeks in advance. And you're given a choice. You know, your your boss rings you up and says, you know, I've got an extra shift for you. Do you want to take it? And that's really <laughs> ultimately um, going to be more important for putting food on your 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 family's table than. You know these sorts of things can get overlooked, and they often don't get caught up. So this is these are the real these access issues are probably more important than the anti-vaccination issues that we see. What's next for this research? It was just a pilot study. Is there plans to do any more research? Uh, yeah. So because we focus on decision making, ultimately what we want to do, and you know, we our hypothesis was that public health was communicating poorly with people that were sitting on the fence so that you know not everyone was automatically anti-vaccination but <laughs> um, they were making a decision and this side of the argument perhaps was more effective than than, than the other so um, what we are looking to do is expand this into bigger groups because attachment parents aren't the only groups in Australia that have been linked with um, with not vaccinating there are groups that are you know using natural approaches to healthcare, care um, complementary medicine users you know there's a big thing about chiropractic recently but you know we want to actually look at more representative populations to see, you know, what across the spectrum in Australia actually informs decisions. Once we have this, we actually want to try and work out what kind of arguments are more persuasive. John Wardle from the UTS Faculty of Health speaking about alternative strategies to catch people who don't vaccinate. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. Please remember that you should not consider the contents of this show medical advice. If this show has made you ask questions, which is great, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Liebeter. This has been Think Health. See you next week for more in health research and news.